Hello and shalom. Welcome to this episode of Image Bearers Radio. I'm your host, Joe Amon. We got a great show ahead, so buckle up and hang on. Here we go. Shalom, shalom, everybody. Hey, welcome, welcome to this episode of Image Bearers Radio. I am your host, Joe Amoth, pastor at Out of Ashes Ministries, coming to you all the way from southwest Louisiana. And I hope you are having a fantastic week. I hope that things are going well and that Hashem is blessing you mightily. And uh, so uh, we are just excited to be back with you guys this week. Uh, we have some interesting stuff coming up. Of course, we are preparing for um, after this month of Av in just a couple of weeks. Then we hit the month of Elul and the 40 days of Shuvah before uh, Yamim Noraim, the 10 days of Av uh, occurring from Yom Trua, Rosh Hashanah, up to Yom Kippur and the exciting, exciting uh, fall festivals. Ending, of course, with Sukkot, Simchat Torah, and Shemini Atzeret. And uh, so I hope you are preparing. I know I say this all the time, but it seems like it's forever away. And really, uh, if we're not planning, we're going to wake up one day and it's going to be like the next week. And we're going to be going, ah, what do we do? What do we do? You know, it took us by surprise. Uh, and it's not by surprise at all. We should be preparing right now. And uh, there's so much happening in in the world, and God is on the move. And, and so it's an exciting time to uh, to be plugged in to the heartbeat and the rhythms of Hashem. That's Shabbat, the new moons, the feast days. And uh, so I'm just excited about this season and this time. Uh, if you are looking for a place to uh, keep Sukkot, then we invite you to go on our website, outofashesministries.org, and look at the very top there, the Sukkot 22 tab, and uh, check out the information there. We have a schedule posted and a short registration form. If you're interested, you can also email us or send us a message on Facebook. Uh, my cell phone number is even on there. You can give me a call, give me, shoot me a text, whatever's easiest for you. And uh, we already have families planning to come from all over the country, so we're super excited uh, and our Sukkot is small and intimate, but uh, it, that's what makes it great, right? And uh, so if you have a local congregation or a local Sukkot um, with people you enjoy, by all means, please, that's your first priority and the place you should keep Sukkot. But if you're looking for a place, we would love to host you and love to have you and uh, would be our blessing and our privilege. Um, for those of you that don't know, if it's your first time stopping by, just want to say hey and thanks for, for uh, joining the conversation. Um, we live stream our Shabbat services uh, every Shabbat at 10 a.m. with rare exception. And usually we'll post those if we have to uh, postpone live stream or cancel service for some reason or another. We'll post that on our Facebook page. So make sure to go over there and like us on Facebook. Um, and uh, we live stream at 10 o'clock Central every Shabbat. And so we'd love to have you as a part of the online community, our online Mishpaka family. Um, and that happens on our website as well as YouTube and Facebook. Uh, if you're following us on or not following us on YouTube, please go over and uh, subscribe and ring the little notification bell. That helps us uh, get the word out a little bit better. 
And like I said, become a part of the community. Get involved in the chat. Tell us where you're from and all that good stuff. And uh, we sure do appreciate it so very, very, very much. Uh, for those of you that are longtime listeners, thank you guys for being a great community and uh, for sticking by us and just making Image Bearers Radio an awesome place to be and hang out and have conversations about uh, the Bible and living out God's call of partnership uh, with mankind. So before we get into today's episode, uh, as we always do, let us go to the Father in prayer. Avinu Malkinu, our Father, our King. Avinu Shabbat Shemayim, our Father that's in heaven. We count it such a privilege to be able to be with you today, talking about your word, expanding your kingdom. And Father, I pray that you instill in all of us the fortitude and wisdom, the chutzpah, to be better bearers of your image in our world. So today we are going to be in Parsha Pinchas. Um, this is the Parsha reading for those of us on the one-year cycle outside of the land of Israel. Uh, inside the land of Israel, they are a week ahead of us because of how the calendar falls and the feast days from Pesach. And uh, we will catch back up, I think, um, at uh, Rosh Hashanah or sometime in that time frame. Uh, but for now, we are in Parsha Pinchas. And uh, the book of Bamibar, I tell you what. Uh, we've done some episodes on it before, but uh, growing up as a kid, you know, I um, I never really got interested in the book of Numbers, and this sounds really silly, but you may understand, um, just because I hated numbers. I hated math. Uh, I hated everything having to do with numbers of any kind, and so when I saw a book of the Bible, Numbers, and then you start reading it, and immediately it's the count of this, and that count of that, and this many, and that many, and oi, yay. You got to get past all that, and not that there's not beauty and wisdom in those countings and censuses and all those things. There is a lot of beauty and wisdom in that. It takes a little work to mine it out and to dig for it, um, because just simply the book of Numbers, especially the Torah as a whole, the Bible as a whole for that matter, uh, the Tanakh especially, is is not written in a way that we really understand. And, uh, you know, people always say, well, it's right here in the black and white. And uh, it's very rarely the case with Scripture that it, that truth is right on the, the very surface. There are, there's always uh, something to be gained uh, by, you know, the surface reading of, of, of Scripture. But uh, I think the ultimate heart of God in our hearts should be to dig in and to, to mine the, the word for gold and for treasures and pearls. And uh, so those, those things are very, very important and very beautiful. However, uh, once you get past that, you get into some fantastic narrative sections. Um, we had uh, Balaam last week. We had Hukat before that and the red uh, Paraduma, the red heifer. Uh, last week's uh, Parsha on, on uh, Balak, excuse me, uh, is just chock full of stuff. There's just so much stuff in there that can be studied and taken out. And uh, I hope that as you're doing your, your Parsha studies every week um, that you're, you know, we we can it's more than we can study in a week. So instead of just doing a cursory reading and kind of getting the gist of the story, that's that's wonderful. We need to do that uh, to have a better working knowledge of where stuff is and and where things are happening. Um, but I hope that you know every week there's something in the parsha that kind of pricks your heart. 
that the Ruach uses to kind of give you curious and, and get you hungry and thirsty for more. And, uh, you know, you take a, a, a rabbit trail and, and study those things. And uh, uh, Parsha Balak is not, uh, is not skinny on those things uh, at all whatsoever. In the same way, um, Parsha Pinchas, like we have uh, this week, uh, is the same. We um, we start out kind of ending, finishing the story from last week, kind of a cliffhanger from last week, uh, where Pinchas, uh, Aaron's grandson, the son of Eleazar, uh, goes into the tent uh, where Zimri, uh, one of the clan leaders, uh, has taken a Moabite woman uh, into the tent and publicly, uh, you know, is publicly uh, showing their affection, uh, if you will, for each other. And uh, Pinchas just says, absolutely not. And uh, he goes in, and of course he runs them through with a spear, and, uh, and it stops the plague, and yet many people did perish, the scriptures tell us, in that. Uh, and so uh, we, we hear some about Midian in the end of chapter 25, and then there's another census taken, uh, and that takes up all of chapter 26, um, and then the count of the Levi's at the end of that, the rest of chapter 26, uh, chapter 27, rather, and 28, um, have to do with the Musaf offerings and uh, Rosh Kodesh and the new moon, and then Pesach is covered again, Shavuot and Rosh Hashanah, those three um, pilgrimage festivals, the uh, uh, Shalosh Regalim, uh, and then we also have uh, Yom Kippur and Sukkot, uh, and uh, ending with Shmini Atzeret. So um, I want to talk today about Pinchas. Uh, and we may get to Shemini Atzeret just because I can't do Parshat Pinchas without talking about uh, the eighth day. And uh, so I want to ask before we really get into it, forgive my voice. I'm trying to get over a sinus infection and uh, I'm not sick anymore, but man, my voice is just having a, a hard time coming back. So uh, forgive me for that and uh, we'll get through this uh, together. So let's start uh, at the end of, uh, of Parshat Balak, if you're in reading along with me. And uh, we're going to go after chapter 25, which is the, the last section of Parshat Balak. Uh, and we're going to go verse 1, and we'll just start reading there. It says, Israel settled in Shittim, and the people began to commit harlotry with the daughters of Moab. Uh, so let's just stop there real quick, and let's situate ourselves a little bit. Uh, so remember that uh, as Israel is making this journey in the beginning of Bamibar, uh, in the beginning of Numbers, by the way, if I would have uh, understood the Hebrew name of the book as Bamidbar in the wilderness, it would have been a lot more attractive to me. And that may be silly, like I said, you know, but it just would have been because how many of us go through wilderness times, right? Some, some would say that the majority of life is a big wilderness, right? That we are just, uh, we're just trying to get through. And uh, while I think that's kind of a grim outlook on life, uh, it can feel like that sometimes. And certainly seasons of life can be just massive, dry wildernesses um, that we have to get through. And this is a book all about those seasons in our lives. It's a book all about, just like Vayikra is all about the call, right? Uh, And coming and approaching and drawing near to Hashem. The book of Numbers and Bamidbar in the wilderness is is about you know what we do when when we're not we don't have that closeness or don't feel like we have that closeness. I can't sense Hashem close to us and the trials and the you know the, the things that can happen whenever you're tired and weary and and worn and just dry places. And so uh, it's it's a it's a wonderful book of hope. And again, if you don't see that on the surface reading, 
understand that there's some treasures and some pearls there that need to be uh, need to be dug out, right? And so, uh, as Israel comes into this last part of the journey, um, we realize that, like in the beginning of Bamidbar, in 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 the first half of the book, we're skipping like 38 years that pass. It's a big jump in time, and a lot of stuff has happened, and we're only getting small snippets of what's happening in the last few years. And so um, the book of Bamibar jumps big, big times, and it's not all in chronological order, so it's a kind of a, a hard book to, to read unless you have a good commentary, a good scholarly you know, um, uh, overview or something like that, or a survey on the book, uh, and kind of gets you situated. But Israel comes through, and they first encounter the land of Edom. And I know that most of you listeners will know this because you're you're smart Bible folks. Uh, But just to situate ourselves, the land of Edom is the ancestral land of whom? Esau, right? So Edom is Esau. Esau is Edom. So you have Avraham, Yitzhak, Yaakov, and Esau. And, of course, we know that story, right? And so Esau, the, 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 the... there's so much, so many incredible things just about realizing that this is a family story. Um, the fact that, you know, Esau gets a blessing as well. He gets an inheritance as well. Now, he's not the Behor. He's not, his inheritance is not the firstborn, the Behor blessing. But he gets a blessing also. He gets a land. He gets to become a people, right? And if you remember like Ishmael, the same kind of thing, that, that anyone attached to Avraham, that is in the in the family circle of Avraham gets a blessing, and of course Avraham, we're told, will bless all nations. But it's really interesting to see it actually working out in the text, where we focus on Israel, focus on Israel, focus on Israel, as we should. But we forget that Esau is a you know he's he's right there. He's a he's a grandson, uh, and he he gets a blessing as well. And and this this land of Edom, Israel's coming through, and you know I gotta think they're like, hey, cuz, you know, can we come through your land? You know, we're family. And Edom is like, no. And you know, of course, you know the story. They're like, oh, we'll stay on the highway. Anything we you know we use, we'll pay for. Nope, nope, nope. And so the interesting thing is, God says, don't lay a finger on them. Go a different way. Go around. Whatever. Don't. I have given Edom. I have given Esau that land, and I think that's really fascinating. We try. We tend to think of Esau as the rebellious one that didn't value the covenant. All that may be true, and yet he still has an inheritance. And I think that's. I just think that's fascinating that that Hashem is that big and that merciful, and he can he can encompass all of that. I just think that's that's it's fantastic. That should be a lot of. Uh, it should be hope giving for us. And so they come then now to these two nations, the Amorites and the Moabites. And of course, Moab gets a lot of bad press, right? A lot of bad play. And they are really highly unliked by the Israelites. And it seems like even by Hashem himself. But remember, who are the, who are, where do these two nations come from? Where do the Amorites and the Moabites come from? Well, they're Lot's kids, Lot's grandchildren, right? From his daughters, Remember the story that Lot's daughters think that, you know, they wake up one morning and think they're the only people survived, Sodom and Gomorrah, um, and, and they think they're the, the last people on earth, so they have to carry on repopulating the earth. At least that's the way I like to read the story. And so they have relations with their father, and they bear children, and these are the Amorites and Moabites. Again, 
still family connected to Abraham, right? Even though Lot was Abraham's son, there's still a familial connection there, and there's still nations that come out of these folks. And again, I just think that's utterly fascinating that, you know, it would be as human beings, we look at people that don't do righteously, maybe don't use the best judgment. (laughs) You could say, you know, uh, lightly to put it lightly. Um, maybe even a rebellious or, you know, unrighteous or whatever. And we think, no, they're cut out. They don't deserve my time. They don't deserve my energy. They don't deserve my blessing, whatever. And yet Hashem doesn't treat people that way, right? Um, especially if there's a, fam- a familial connection. And because of Abraham's faithfulness, it's not like Hashem is showing favoritism because we know like what happens to the Amalekites, right? Remember to forget Amalek, <laughs> which is one of my favorite phrases in all the Torah. Remember to forget Amalek. Um, but it's because of Abraham's righteousness. Abraham earned, and I know that's kind of a dirty word in some of our backgrounds, but Abraham earned a standing with Hashem. He earned a blessing and he earned an inheritance for his descendants because of his righteousness, right? Better Sheet tells us that Abraham kept all of my laws and statutes, etc. before there was even a Sinai, uh, you know, Sinai covenant. And so it's just utterly fascinating that, you know, it should be a challenge to us that in this, you know, religious culture over the last several decades that says that, you know, you're you're worthless and even your righteousness is as filthy rags. And I had this conversation just a week ago with a, a reformed Calvinist friend of mine, uh, you know, and he, he just could not get over the fact that, you know, he just kept throwing up that verse. Yeah, but Isaiah says that, you know, all of your righteousness is as filthy rags. Fil- you know, we can't do anything to please God. And I'm like, man, look, to, look at your Bible. Read your Bible. Get out of Paul for just 10 seconds and get into the Torah. Get into the Tanakh and read. Abraham earned an incredible legacy uh, and progeny for his children and grandchildren and anyone attached to him by family. Now, the Moabites and Amorites don't do everything right. You know, they're not, they're not loyal to Hashem. They have their own gods, their own Baalim and, and, and things. So I'm not praising them, but I'm saying that they still received an inheritance. They still were made nations. And I just think that's a fascinating thing. So the, the big overall point that I want to make from all that is that we forget sometimes the, just the sheer um, uh, minuteness or smallness of the geographic area we're talking about. We tend to think about all the way from Egypt, all the way to Israel, which is a long journey. But really, a lot of this happens right in what we call Transjordan, just south of Egypt, uh, south of Israel, excuse me, and to the east of, of Israel, what is now Jordan. And that's where the, the, the land of Edom and then the Moabites and Amorites are situated, the way that Israel came in to the land uh, between the Mount Harbacha and, uh, and Mount, uh, um, uh, Mount Elamore. And so this, this idea is just fascinating to me that really what we're dealing with, really what the biblical story is about, at least the Tanakh, really what the biblical Tanakh is about, is it about one small family? Now, small I mean, in the, in the scope of humanity, one small family, Abraham and all the different tentacles of families that run off of Abraham, but from Abraham, not from so-and-so over here and so-and-so over there. These are all Abraham's people, right? And it's in one little geographic, you know, piece of land. Uh, and, and, I, and, and I think that just brings so much scope and so much context 
to these stories that we read because we can get lost. We can get lost in the people of it. Who are these ites? All these ites. I don't know. I don't know who these people are. Well, they all come from somewhere. And most of them, if you would actually, if we would actually read the genealogies and, and do some charting and, and, and do some really some good study on the genealogies, we'd realize that these are all family. They're all cousins. And I just think that's fascinating. Uh, and it really gives a lot of scope and context to the stories that we're reading. So these, it tells us in verse one that yeah, we've only gotten through one verse, but this is usually how my, my Torah studies go. Um, it says that they, the, the men of Israel, the people of Israel began to commit harlotry with the daughters of Moab, right? And so this, uh, their God was Peor. You'll see Baal Peor. That's Baal is the word for Lord, of course. Uh, and so Peor is their, uh, their God. And in verse two, let's keep reading. It says they invited the people to the feast of their gods. The people ate and prostrated themselves to their gods, and Israel became attached to Baal Peor, and the wrath of Hashem flared up against Israel. Now, there's, again, there's so much in here that, you know, we, we could take hours to go through, and I'm not going to put you through that. But what I think is fascinating about this is it is, you know, I don't know how in, in Christianity we have missed the importance of God's appointed times, Moedim. For so long, I, growing up in church, I heard sermons about this passage. I heard teachers teach and pastors, you know, and preachers preach, evangelists talk about this passage. And what we never realized is that, that Israel connected with the Moabite people through their feast days. When Israel had already been given feast days. And surely they were still keeping the Moedim of Hashem, but they were also keeping, doesn't mean they put down God's feast days, but they were keeping the Moabite, the Peorian feast days right up there with them. And they became attached. So what does that tell us? It tells us that we become attached to Hashem. One of the ways is through keeping his Moedim. One of the ways we attach to Hashem, you know, and I don't know what tradition you come from, but, you know, in some traditions it's through through studying the word. That's how you connect to God. In some, it's heavy on prayer and worship. In some, it's acts of service. You know, and name your denomination. Some, it's through liturgy. Some, it's through self-sacrifice. I mean, every denomination has, you know, one or two main ways or three, whatever, a few main ways that you, that they feel is important that we connect to God. And yet this tells us that Israel connected to Peor and, and drew themselves to, uh, towards Peor through their feast days. And I think, again, that's utterly fascinating. I think that's something we should take note of. More importantly, it says that they prostrated themselves to their gods, right? They bowed to their gods. But look at what, what else, and that's something we would understand, like bowing in loyalty, bowing in submission. We know that's a big no-no, right? That's, that's pretty obvious to us. Like we wouldn't go on vacation to China or wherever, and bow before a Buddha statue. We wouldn't prostrate ourselves before a Buddha statue, right? Or go to your local Chinese buffet, you know, whatever, and, and prostrate yourself before uh, a Buddha statue. We wouldn't do that. That's very evident that we know that's like, no way. That's way out of bounds. That's way out of line. And we understand that. However, look at the part we skipped, right? And it says that the people ate and prostrated themselves. And I know I'm using utterly fascinating a lot in this episode because it, all this stuff just, 
it blows my mind and it makes me curious and passionate and hungry to, to, to understand what's really going on here because it's things that I never heard before. It's things that I didn't, I never was told was important. I was told things were important like prayer and study and, and all those things are important. But there's a whole other world of living for God that I never was told was important that actually brings all of those other things together. It completes the whole package. It completes the, the whole God walk, faith walk and culture. And it says that they ate. They ate before the other, before Peor and prostrated themselves to their gods. And I've, I've talked about this before. Uh, I'm scheduling Joe Good to be on a, a, an episode with me soon and to come and teach where we can live stream it. But the importance of eating in Scripture cannot be understated. And I know you may think, like, yeah, well, yeah, it's not. And, and I, I think we're all far enough along this, this walk to know that the, the, the clean and unclean debate is over. Whether Yeshua made all foods clean and Peter, and all, I think that debate hopefully is over. But we don't understand the importance of eating in Scripture. We'll talk about more. We'll be right back. Hey guys, we're back. Thank you and welcome back to the second uh, segment in this episode of Image Bearers Radio. So we're talking about the importance of eating. And this kind of is a soapbox thing for me. You guys have heard it before if you've listened for any amount of time, but it's something that Joe Good really opened my eyes to. And his statement is that eating is one of the highest forms of worship in Scripture. And I think maybe his statement is, is the highest form of worship. And so we... Again, like I said, I hope the clean and unclean debate is over for most of us. Um, you know, Yeshua did not, in, in the Gospels, therefore, thereby, he declared all foods clean. That's not what was going on there. And then, of course, Peter's vision is not about food. It's about people. We understand that if we keep reading and don't just stop there, right? I, can't, I cannot believe in 2022 there's pastors still preaching. It's still preaching that God showed Peter that all things were clean. I cannot believe that we're still preaching that. How is it possible that we're still preaching that in our churches? Anyway, like I said, soapbox thing, and I, so I'll get off of it. But I hope that debate is settled. But what is not settled, I think, for many of us is the actual importance of the act of eating and what we eat and with whom we eat and the state of mind and the, the presence of Hashem in which we eat. You know, this is, this is part of what the offerings were all about, the carbonate. And notice I didn't say sacrifices because I, I don't like using that word because it's got a lot of baggage. But part of what the carbonate were all about were about, about taking and sharing part of your offering, depending on what it was, with the priests. And part of it you ate yourself, again, depending on what offering it was, in the presence of Hashem, in the temple complex in the tabernacle area. And you had, uh, you had Koshe Kalim, which were the lesser offerings. 
and then you had Koshe Kodashim, which were the holy offerings, most holy offerings, and the most holy offerings could only be by, eaten by the priest in a certain area. And then Koshe Kalim, the lesser off, lesser holy offerings could be eaten by, you know, other people in different places. As long as you, in some, in some places, as long as you could see the tabernacle, you could eat those offerings. So in the camp of Israel, as long as you could see the tabernacle. And then when the temple was built inside the walls of Jerusalem, those offerings could be eaten. They were meant to be enjoyed by your family in the presence of Hashem as a thanksgiving and as a fellowship. Not only with the people you were eating to be shared with the people you were eating with, but also in the presence of Hashem as well. And so eating really is an act of worship. And, 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 and so what if we really understood that? Right. What if we really this is why uh, this is one of the reasons why in the rabbinic tradition, there are this multitude of blessings and, and prayers that are said after after you eat. Uh, it's the reason why in the Siddur, we talk about the offerings every day and, and all these things. It's not just the offerings for, you know, the offering's sake. It's about the byproduct of those offerings and our heart and what it teaches us about fellowship with Hashem. It's a beautiful thing. And so we can understand a little bit better why it's so, um, you know, why it's so offensive to Hashem when someone who says they believe in Him and are loyal to Him eats things that He says are not for you to eat. It's offensive because it's, it's an act of misplaced worship. It's like prostrating yourselves before a Buddha statue. It's like prostrating yourselves in a Hindu temple. Right? It, it's, a, it's, a, it's as much an act of worship, eating with the right attitude, eating the right things, eating in the right way, is as much an act of worship as any hand that is ever raised in, in worship, any tear that is ever shed, any act of service that is ever done in worship to, to Hashem, it's as much worship as that, and we don't think about it like that. This is why kashrut, kosher eating in Judaism, is such a big deal. Not because they believe that if you, if you eat a wrong way, God's going to be mad at you, but they understand eating as a worship. Because when the temple was destroyed in 70 AD, the second temple was destroyed, uh, the anniversary of which we just celebrated the fast of seven, on the seventeenth of Tammuz, but when the second temple was destroyed, uh, the the sages tell us that the the altar that was once in the temple moved to the family table, and the family table now becomes the altar. Wow, that's I'm going to use the word again. That's incredibly fascinating, right? That the, the your family table becomes the altar. Now, if we read back about the altar and all the, you know, all the halakha around the altar and the, you know, all the commandments around the altar, and then we apply that to our family table, wow, how revolutionary would that be, right? How absolutely, how much would that revolutionize our walk with God and the way that we approach Hashem in all aspects? Because food is so key. Food is so important. Food is so fundamental and foundational to our very existence, right? And so it would make sense that that's one of the ways that Hashem connects to us the most by something that is so naturally and viscerally necessary for us. I just think it's beautiful. It's powerful if we will let it transform us, right? All right, so let's move on. Let's keep reading. It says, uh, verse four, Hashem said to Moshe, take all the leaders of the people and hang them before Hashem against the sun. 
and the flaring wrath of Hashem will withdraw from Israel. So I say this all the time, but very rarely, if at all, will you ever find from Genesis to the book of Revelation where Hashem or the prophets, even Yeshua, has an issue with individual, average individual, I say average, normative individual Israelites. You got the, the story of the guy picking up sticks on Shabbat. I guess that's one. Uh, but very, very rarely does Hashem, you know, rebuke through the scriptures, at least what we have recorded, individual Israelites. Hashem's main issue in contention is with the leadership. And we say this all the time. Uh, I remind you of uh, the Mishnah in, uh, or the uh, Midrash, I'm sorry. No, Mishnah. Yeah, Mishnah. Uh, We read a few weeks ago when uh, Rabbi uh, Bar Yochai uh, talks about this idea of the leadership. If a nation goes astray because of its leadership, the only thing that can be done is for the leadership to be replaced and eliminated. However, if a nation goes awry because of the people, a good leader can bring the nation back. And I think we are seeing this right now. I'm not saying, you know, I'm not saying anything about Joe Biden or Donald Trump or any of that. I'm not making those political statements. What I am saying is I think anyone with any sense of wherewithal could understand that we are in one of the most divided times maybe in our nation's history. We are polarized like like we haven't been in a long, long time. And that's because the leadership has polarized us. Not just our current leader, but the former leader, and the one before that, and the one before that, and the one before that. And what we need is a leader that can cast a vision that brings us all together as Americans. Not this American and that American and, and that American over there and those Americans. All as one nation under God, right? And so this leadership. However, God here says, hey, Moses, deal with these leaders of the clans, the leaders of the tribes. And if you'll deal with them, then my, my wrath will be turned away, right? So verse 5 says, Moshe said to the judges of Israel, let each man kill his men who were attached to Baal Peor. And that would have done it. But next verse says, behold, verse 6, a man of the children of Israel, uh, tradition tells us his name was Zimri. He was one of the leaders of one of the tribes. Forgive me, it escapes me at this moment. He brought a Midianite woman near to his brothers in the sight of Moshe and in the sight of the entire assembly of the children of Israel. He's flaunting her in the camp of Israel, which is strictly forbade. And they were, uh, excuse me, and they were weeping at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Pinchas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the Kohen, saw and he stood up from amid the assembly and took a spear in his hand. He followed the Israelite man into the tent and pierced them both the Israelite man and the woman, into her stomach, but you understand. And then the plague was halted. From upon the children of Israel, those who died in the plague were 24,000. We go on to the beginning of our Parsha, Parsha Pinchas, and verse 10 tells us of chapter 25, Hashem spoke to Moshe saying, Pinchas, son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the Kohen, turned back my wrath from upon the children of Israel when he zealously avenged my vengeance among them. So I did not consume the children of Israel as a whole, right? It was supposed to just be the leadership, but as a whole in my vengeance. Therefore say, behold, I will give him my covenant of peace and it shall be for him and his offspring after him, a covenant of eternal priesthood 
because he took vengeance for his God and he atoned for the children of Israel. The name of the slain Israelite man was this, who was slain and with the Midianite woman was Zimri, the son of Salu, the leader of the father's house of the Simeonites. There you go. So he's a tribe of Simeon. And the name of the slain Midianite woman was Cosby, daughter of Zur, who was head of the people of a father's house in Midian. And so this incredible thing happens and we see it's, it's at a leadership level. And I'm, I, this is not to say, hey, if you're not a leader somehow in the kingdom, then you can skate by and do whatever you want. That's not what I'm saying. Please don't hear that. But what I'm saying is that leadership has an, an unbelievable responsibility that I don't think, you know, I don't know that maybe all leadership understands. And maybe that the people hold them accountable for. Some leadership in certain, you know, certain areas, they're untouchable. They're the leader and what they say goes and that's just it. And nobody can question them. I wonder sometimes if even God can question them because they're so narcissistic in the way that they lead. And the, the, the text constantly points us back to leadership and how important it is. And even, even in, the, the, in the apostolic scriptures, you know, Shaul says, not many of you should want to, want to be teachers, right? And so... This is this idea of the, the leadership having this, this massive responsibility. And so it, all sh- it should force us all to walk with the utmost of humility, uh, foresight, sensitivity to not only God and his leading, but also sensitivity to the people around us that God has put in our place. We should have as leaders multiple, and if there's any leaders listening, I pray that you take this into consideration. We should have multiple, um, multiple levels of accountability. Those close to you that live with you every week and are in service and listening to you teach and watching your life and watching how you treat your wife and how you raise your kids and how you treat your animals and all those kinds of things. I used to have an old pastor that, that used to say, you know, your, your dog should know you're saved. If you come out of, in those days, if you come out of church, you know, from a Holy Ghost meeting and you've shouted and danced and, you know, all sweated through your shirt all over the, the church and then you walk in your house and kick the dog, all that shouting didn't do anything. That was all for nothing. There was, no, there was no substance to it. You might as well just stayed home. So you should have that level of accountability. And you should also have accountability um, you know, of people that you respect, that, that you honor, um, that are detached, that are, but that are praying for you, but are still detached in some way, that can see things from a, a different perspective than you right, against, you know, right up against everything. We can't see the forest for the trees, as the saying goes sometimes. So we need elders that are outside of that. Uh, so we need to be sensitive and humble and, and have insight and wisdom. And so what caused, what we have this thing about biblical violence, right, that a lot of people really struggle with, and, and rightly so, I understand. How can you have so much violence in, you know, portrayed in the Tanakh, and yet Yeshua comes to preach this, you know, message of peace? And how does that schism work, and how does that dichotomy work? Well, what's interesting about this story with Pinchas is that some, some Jewish tradition says that at this time, Pinchas was the high priest. Um, and so what, we, what we're dealing with then is we're dealing with the idea that, that I think about as radial Kedusha. And this, this idea, we've talked about it before, but just as a review, this idea that, that emanating from the center Let's say the, the center is Shekinah, is the, the, the dwelling presence of Hashem, right? Emanating from that, you have decreasing levels of Kedusha. 
as far as people go, which means that the high priest can access uh, Kodesh HaKodeshim, the Holy of Holies, once a year, and it's very, it has to be done very, very uh, accurately, right? Exactly. Um, and so we, coming from our traditions, we all like, we just want to be in God's presence, right? I just want to be, oh, if I could just stay in God's presence. And yet, I don't know that we really realize what we're asking for a lot of the time. Because the Kohen Gadol, he had ultimate access to the presence of God that one time a year. And yet, he had to live with the most restriction, the most strict lifestyle, the most piety, the most responsibility. And he carried all of that weight because of his access to Hashem. Going out from there, you have the Kohanim, right? The sons of Aaron that served in the holy place with Lechem HaPanim, the table of showbread, the menorah, the altar of incense, right? They have a little less access than the Kohen Gadol. They can't enter the Holy of Holies, and yet they don't bear quite as much weight and responsibility as he does. And then coming out from there, you have the Levites, right? The, the next circle out is the Levites who served in the, the court and at the altar and, you know, doing the, uh, the slaughter and the offerings and all. They're close. They're not as close to, to the presence, and yet they don't have as many rules and mitzvot to fulfill and responsibilities and obligations as the Kohenim do. And then out from there, you have the men of Israel, the leadership, right? The, the Sanhedrin, the leaders of the tribes, the, the princes, etc. Again, they're not quite as close to the presence, but they don't have near the responsibility. Then out from there, you have the, the, you know, the regular Israelites. And so the, our, I understand, and it's, it's with great intention, that we have this desire to be in Hashem's presence. And yet I don't know that we know what we're asking for. I don't know that we, as Yeshua would say it, would be willing to count the cost even before, and that's what I'm asking us to do. I'm asking us to count the cost. That if we want to be closer to the presence of Hashem, we have to understand the weight and responsibility that, that comes with because the closer you are, the more representative you are. And that's a big deal. That's a big, big deal. And Hashem takes that very, very seriously, right? So we have to, we have to understand this, this, this thing that we're dealing with. Now, why could Pinchas, basically, as the people accused him, according to the Midrash, why could he commit wanton murder and God approves of it when anybody else would have done it and they would have probably been guilty of murder? Why could he do it and, quote unquote, not only get away with it, but be praised for it and been given what's called the covenant of peace and, and been given the eternal priesthood? How is that possible? Because if Jewish tradition is right, and he is the Kohen Gadol, he has the resp- it is his and his responsibility alone to make sure that the name of Hashem is being protected. Now, right? Let's think about this and get our heads around this. He has, Pinchas is not just some guy that's got a lot of zeal and takes it upon himself to pick up his spear and go kill these two people, one of them an Israelite. It's not that he's just some bystander that, you know, that, that goes, hey, what's going on over there? 
No, he is, if again, Jewish tradition, if we believe it uh, and, and, and take it, he is the Kohen Gadol. That means that he is the closest to the presence of Hashem serving in the tabernacle. And he is the one who is most representative and, and has the biggest. Uh, let's think about this. What is the commandment that is given to the Levites and the priesthood? What are the two words we've talked about before? We talked about it in our Genesis series. What is the two words that they are to do? You remember in Hebrew? Avod v'shamar, right? Avod v'shamar. Avod f- to serve. That's where we get our word avodah, which is the service in the temple. Services in the temple are called the avodah. And shamar. Shamar, we, we usually translate it, I think, I don't like the way it's translated, as keep. Maybe better translated as guard. To guard, right, the sacred space of Hashem the house of God, the dwelling place. They are to serve and to guard, inward and outward, serve and guard. Whose responsibility does that most acutely fall on? It most precisely and most uh, concentratedly, I guess, it's not a word, but it's most concentrated on the Kohen Gadol. He is the representative of God to the people and the people to God. He bears an enormous weight. And so it's his and his place alone to be able to enact this justice. Now, we don't see Pinchas just killing people left and right for random stuff, right? He's not exacting this justice on just anybody for anything. It's not that. It's one moment in time where this egregious sin is happening. And this, this thing that God had said over and over, don't do don't intertwine with the, with the nations around you. Don't serve their gods. Don't over and over and over. The two biggest pushbacks that Hashem and warnings that Hashem has for the people is don't commit idolatry. Well, we already read they did that by prostrating themselves before uh, Baal Peor. Not to commit idolatry and the, the, the acts of sexual immorality. And so by prostrating themselves and eating before the God, their foreign gods, the gods of, of Peor, and, before, and by committing these acts of, of sexual morality, they are blatantly, and especially Zimri, I mean, he just walks her right, in, right through the, the crowd. Can you imagine the hush over the crowd? Or maybe cheers at this point, I don't know, depending on, on the state of the people. But the audacity to walk her before the priesthood, before the tabernacle, before Moshe, Rabbeinu himself, and Pinchas, the Kohen Gadol at the time, Eleazar, the, the former Kohen Gadol, or however we think about that, whatever we believe is true in that aspect. And the outright brazenness is, is not only to the people and to the leadership, but it's to Hashem himself. It's like taking those two commandments, those two warnings, those two prohibitions, and putting one on each shoulder and carrying them into God's presence and lifting them up in his face and being so brazen with that. So what's the only cure? The only cure is for the representative of Hashem to make justice, take justice into his own hands. And he has the authority and the responsibility to do that in this case because of who he is and because of the blatantness of the, 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 the sin, of the transgression, and thirdly, 
because of the 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 matter that they're dealing with, the matters that they're dealing with, idolatry and sexual morality. And so the, this this thing about you know vigilante justice, we I, some people have this idea that we're like oh well you know I just take matters into my own hands, and I can call down fire and I can you know I can tell this one off and that one off and I can correct this one and that one and I you know I can do all these things and what I would say to that is you know go with God I guess if understand that with that. With that, that's a responsibility. With that responsibility comes even more accountability. And you have to make sure that you're the person for that job. And if you're not, you better steer clear because it's not just any person's job to come and run roughshod on people and correct people and, and you know, be God's mouthpiece. You look at the people who are God's mouthpiece in the Tanakh and even in the, in the New Testament, apostolic scriptures, and most of us would not want their lives. We want their, the benefits. We want the gifts. We want the privilege of speaking for God on God's behalf and, and slaughtering our enemies or the enemies of tr- truth, the enemies of God, whatever. It's not our place. We would be one of the Israelites standing around watching what's going on. And you know what? We have to be okay with that. I'm not saying that we shouldn't speak against injustice and unrighteousness in, in, our, in our nation, you know, in our communities, whatever. I'm not saying that, but I'm saying to act, to act in a way that for us would be unlawful for the right person. It's righteousness. See, that's what Kedusha. One of the things that Kedusha does is it separates the things that are unlawful for some, but the righteous thing for others. And we have to know where those lines are. We have to be faithful to those and be okay with where God has us. So I hope you enjoyed this uh, episode, guys. Thanks so much for being with me. I pray God's richest, richest blessings on you the rest of this week as we approach the feast days and get excited about the things God is doing. Have a great week. Shavuot Tov and Shalom Shalom. Shalom.